Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Banking Matters. Not only is it a new episode, but it's also a new year. And today, we're going to do something a bit different than our usual broadcast, where we invite a guest to join us. We thought that we would introduce ourselves as co-hosts of this podcast. I'm Daniel Baker, and joining me here in the studio, we have Ashton Woodling. Hey, everybody. Currently, I work for Compliance Alliance, where I've been about for three years. Ashton, on the other hand, works for a sister company of ours called Review Alliance. Ashton, remind me, how long have you been there for? About a year and a half, but it feels like a lifetime. (laughs) Well, so our, our audience can learn a little bit more about who you are. Why don't you share with us about how you got to where you are today? Sure. So my background is in internal audit. And here's the spot where I kind of feel like I always have to apologize. Like, I'm so sorry on behalf of auditors everywhere. Uh, But my background then was in consumer compliance and also mortgage on the safety and soundness side. So a little bit of both. Um, And fun fact, one of our uh, vice presidents of virtual compliance officer at Review Alliance is Wendy Sullivan. And she Mm -hmm. has been my mentor for forever. So creepy stalker um, wise, I kind of followed her. So she left (laughs) and I made it exactly a year and a half without her before um, I just followed right along to to do what she did. Because, And I like to say that she taught me everything I know because she was my mentor for forever. So Mm -hmm. if I ever give an answer that's maybe um, not quite right, it's probably what you her. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, uh, what, what, what banks did you work at? Do you mind if I ask before you, you came to Compliance Alliance side? Yeah. So before Compliance Alliance, I was at Central Bank Company, which is a multi-banker, was a multi-bank holding company um, okay. that's headquartered in mid-Missouri. Uh, they started out with, or and I started out, but when I started there, they had 13 separately chartered banks wow. um, across a few states. And then mm-hmm. uh, before I left, they were right around $20 billion in assets and they had collapsed all the charters. So Uh, That was a wild adventure that I hope I don't have to experience again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I bet. So are you still still located in the the same state or have you you moved on since then? Yeah, I'm still here. And actually, um, my husband, so he worked for the bank with me. He was uh, in maintenance and he's still there. So, you know, like small towns and small banks, I still get to hear about everything. So it's not like it's not a clean breakup. I still go to the Christmas party every year. Uh, that, that's fantastic. I mean, at least you hopefully have a, a good relationship there, that oh, they're yeah. not too disappointed to, to see you coming back for the parties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this girl? We just keep trying to get rid of her, but... I know. <laughs> well, for myself, um, besides some childhood jobs making sandwiches and, and picking up sticks and stuff, I started working at a bank called TCF Bank. It was actually my first like real job. Um, it's a small mid-sized bank located in, in Colorado. I worked out of a branch in, in Colorado Springs. Um, after there, I actually moved to Chase Bank where I worked in the in-house or, or the, the, the front office side of things. So in the branch, um, for about five years. And I did, I did everything there. Like I started out as a personal banker and I ended up being like a private client banker, managing a, a book of business of, of high affluent customers. And from there, I actually went to law school, um, Spent a few years doing that and then transitioned into to bankruptcies and civil suits at a, at a local law firm. And now I've been at Compliance Alliance and it's been it's been three years, <laughs> three long years, good years, three long years. We'll go with both of them. I have to say, Dan, I'm so jealous of your sort of front of house experience 
because I have always been the person on the back end. So either second or third line saying, here's how we do it, or here's how you should have done it, but Mm -hmm. never actually the doer. So I'm honestly, I'm jealous of that experience you have. You know, it it does give me kind of an interesting perspective because working on the compliance side of things, I do a lot of of handling the regulations and and everything like that. So I see how things should be done just because that's how things should be done. doesn't always mean that's how things are done. It's like an interesting perspective of what actually happens on the branch level versus what should be happening on the branch level. And it's, it's, it's a good combination. So then Ashton, besides getting to work on, on podcast projects all day, (laughs) what's, what's your review with review lines? What do you do? Yeah. So I'm a virtual compliance officer. So um, if I had to make a comparison, so I know you'll talk about you in a minute, right? And you're you're an Mm -hmm. attorney at Compliance Alliance. I like to think of you all as being like the casual dating relationship with our client (laughs) banks, right? Whereas, yeah, a virtual compliance officer, though, we're engaged to those banks. Like Mm -hmm. we know their friends, we know their family. We uh, have accidentally stumbled into the closet with the skeletons. Um, we work very closely with our assigned banks and we help them, um, in any number of ways. So every contract is super tailored to the bank. So it might be that we are totally helping run their compliance management program, Mm -hmm. overseeing their compliance committee and and making sure things get done, running the monitoring, or it might be really project-based. We might only be doing the monitoring. Uh, but I don't think any relationship we have with a VCO bank is identical to another. I think they're all really unique, which makes it really fun. Uh, by the end of the day, I am worn out in the brain because you go like <laughs> 90 different directions all at the same time, like from a CRA question to a lending question to yep. a question and in the span of 30 minutes. And it's hard to keep up, but it's so fun. And um, back to my analogy, my favorite part though is being engaged to all of these banks because mm-hmm. it's so much fun to build the relationships and um, get to know everybody on that personal level. That's the best part. So how many how many banks do you manage? So um, VCOs manage anywhere between like three and five banks. Uh, right now I'm at three uh, okay. since I get to help with podcast. Awesome. So I mean, you're, you're changing hats on and off pretty frequently throughout the day just to, to make sure you're taking care of all the different banks. Absolutely. Yes. That's great. Well, I actually get a little bit of a privilege on the, the compliance side side where I, I work with a lot of the same banks you do. In fact, my, my technical title is that I'm, I'm the virtual compliance officer support. So I, I, I get to, to support you guys. So I've chat with you on, on all sorts of fronts, but uh, I, I also function as, as an attorney that supports just our, our regular member banks. So I feel the chats, the phone calls, um, as, as they come in and they have a, a question for, for those banks that have contracted with compliance lines. But I also review policies, procedures, advertisements, and then I get to help draft some of the policies and procedures that we draft, some of the tools like the calculators, and then I get to help create the education webinars and, and you know, all the fun stuff that people really look forward to watching every month. That's, that's, what, that's what we get to do, and that's, that's some of the things we get to offer. I think that you have to um, make sure you put a little plug in here, brag on yourself for that Reg CC calculator that you <laughs> developed. Holy cow! I, I don't, I, that one still gives me nightmares. For those of our, <laughs> our audience listening in, so Compliance Alliance, we, we actually offer a variety of different tools that, that we we have, and, and one of them is a Reg CC calculator. And if you ever get the chance to get your hands on that, it is a wonderful, obnoxious, terrible, all sorts of fun Excel calculator that you can toy around with and, and you're welcome to, to, to use it as, as you will. A work of art. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> so then I wanted to kind of go over and 
kind of present some incentive to our audience listening in. What what are some of the episodes we've got coming up, Ashton? Yeah, so we have been really busy um, recording episodes for the podcast and lining guests up. And I'm really excited about some of the guests that you get to hear speak because we've got folks um, from really diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So I know a couple weeks ago, you got to listen to, to Craig Ospo do the Christmas yep. episode with me. And he was so fun and had such a unique perspective as a board member and, you know, from a, a branding background. Um, and we kind of continued that that unique background theme. So we have guests talking about bank insurance, um, where personally I learned a lot because I, I had never really had to think about that. Um, but who knew banks get insured, right? Um, <laughs> and then we have someone talking about um, sound IT security practices with uh, many, many good takeaways. Um, and then also we talk about implementing regulatory changes across the business line. Mm-hmm. And um, also we have one discussing the like the mental health aspects that finances have on consumers, which is just, it's amazing. Huh. I'm so That's actually a pretty fascinating topic. I don't think I would have ever, ever considered that element of it. Yeah. Well, I know uh, I just I just had a, a recent one myself with a, a gentleman by the name of Peter Madlin, and I'm actually really excited because he's got such a diverse background. So I'm 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 friends with his his daughter, so she was able to give me a little bit of a through the grapevine side of things. But he's got a background, so he currently works as a chief investment officer um, for a wealth management firm. But besides that, like when he was a kid, he he competed in bronco riding. <laughs> he did minor league baseball. He's a classical guitarist to this day. Like he still he still publishes some some things and, and sells some classical pieces that, that that he's written. He started a classical guitar program um, at the university. I want to say it's Santa Barbara, um, and and then he's had thirty five plus years inside of the the financial industry and wealth management. So yeah, some of these people we get on the the. The podcast they they've got they've got backgrounds that are really impressive and really cool to talk about. Yeah, it puts it all into perspective. Where I'm like, man, I feel like I juggle a lot in my life, and then you list all those things off that Peter <laughs> does. And I'm like, actually, I don't. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm actually a father of five. Um, and when I say five, I mean like my my fifth one was just born. Let's see, it's it's about two months ago now. So that's that's probably why you guys have seen a bunch of Ashton's face on the the, the podcast recently. Um, she just came on board and just absolutely crushed setting appointments and, and getting new people to, to join for the episode. So we've been excited to have her. Uh, but yeah, when I say five, I've got five boys, Ashton. We don't have a single girl in my house besides my wife. So we are polar opposites because you have five boys and I have one girl and, and I'm great. (laughs) I'm great with that. It is enough. So hats off to you because I think I'd spend a lot of time in the shower crying in your house. (laughs) Boys scare me. Yeah, I have I have no clue how to raise a girl. If I have a boy, I can just send it outside and they'll find us and they'll find a stick and probably chase their brother with it and they'll just call it good. Oh yeah, uh, we do. I do parent my daughter a little differently, but I still think I, I'm coming out ahead here with just one. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, hey, one of the one of the things that we wanted to do was to to kind of go over some of the hot takes and and some of the the interesting talking points that that we've come across on on both sides of the spectrum, both on the the virtual compliance and then the attorney answering the the, the questions side of things. So I think Ashton, you you mentioned something about enforcement actions and home debt integrity. What what were you thinking regarding that? 
Yeah. So I'll say like as a VCO, we super get in the weeds with everything. So I spend um, an uncomfortable amount of time in my life dealing with Humda. And so we all know that uncomfortable Humda amount. Is- I, I appreciate this, this comment. Yeah. Uh, so we all know that Humda is this regulation that basically is just data reporting, right? Um, mm-hmm. we, we, we report all this data and it needs to be right. And then it's used to decide if we're um, discriminating, right? Fair lending, redlining, all of these other purposes. Yeah. So usually when, when we think about enforcement actions and Humda, we, we see that impact piece. Um, so kind of equivalent to like, uh, I think about like my daughter and we're both parents. So this is probably uh, a good way for us to think about this. So I walk into her bedroom and it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. So I'm a regulator walking into a bank and I see that their Humdalar is a disaster. I still want to do my review, right? I still want right. to analyze it and see if there are fair lending or redlining issues. So I just say, clean up your room. And like, as a parent, I still want to go see that movie too. So clean up your room so we can go <laughs> fix it. And usually that's enough, right? Because just yeah. doing like, a Humda data integrity scrub or something, that's an, enough of a, a stick, right? That banks don't want to invest that kind of time and energy. And it's enough. Uh, rarely do we see the parent that says, clean up your room and you're grounded and we're not going to the movies. Right. However, that's what we've seen in the past couple months with Humda data integrity. Um, off the top of my head, I can think of two banks who had uh, consent orders or um, enforcement actions hit with them just over Humda data integrity. Um, so without going too far uh, into the weeds of either of those, just kind of pointing out that shift from using the data to, to being willing to kind of slap the bank and ground them if their data isn't right, which is, kind of, I feel like it's a shift in focus. So I, I remember those those articles. Remind me, one of them one of them was the bank just didn't submit Humda or like all their other loan officers were marking off like, yeah, I did not like, did not provide, and, and we're talking like a hundred percent of like their their loans. The loan officers are saying, "Yeah, no, we, we we're good." They didn't they didn't provide, it. and it wasn't just like one loan officer doing this. It was like hundreds of loan officers that were doing this, right? Yeah. So this was a widespread issue at a large bank. Where if you're familiar with Humda, you know that if you take a Humda reportable transaction application over the phone, you have to mm-hmm. ask some really uncomfortable demographic questions, and nobody <laughs> wants to do it. Um, and so. While I'm going to add my own color to this, right, the loan officers decided like, just won't do it. I'll say that they didn't answer. Um, And so they, instead of even asking the question, just documented that um, the applicant like denied the request to provide that information or whatever, declined to provide. That's what I'm looking for. Um, And so it was a really blatant violation, I hate to say violation, I'm not a regulator, right? But like a really blatant issue with compliance with the rule. Um, and, and I think that in reading some of the the documentation there in the consent order, I think that they knew it. Um, there had been mm-hmm. some monitoring and testing over time and the bank was kind of aware of the situation and it continued. So it wasn't like a secret. It, it wasn't something like, you don't, you don't, your number shouldn't be a hundred percent. Everybody's refusing to deny, but pretty much is what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Rarely are you going to see that like everybody's like, I'm not going to tell you my, my race, sex or ethnicity, right? Usually at least one person's going to, but they were seeing drastic percentages showing that they declined to provide the information. Yeah. That makes, that makes absolute sense. I, I can't agree with that, that concept more. Um, for my, my hot take, we actually, deal a lot with advertising questions. I don't know if you deal a lot with, with advertising questions on the, the VCO side of things, but I, I get advertising questions all day, both on chats and phones and then and then 
when when I'm doing reviews, like all I review is, is ads and, and policies and procedures. So we, we get tons of advertising things. And there's two that always kind of make me smile to myself for, for lack of a, of a better element. And a lot of it comes from, from a misunderstanding of, of what things are. So the first one is actually going to be in, in Regulation Z. Everybody loves Regulation Z, right? I mean, that's everybody's best friend. I'm going to get 1026 tattooed on my knuckles. I've talked about it. <laughs> yeah. You, you, I mean, if, you, if you're if you gangster enough to understand all the regulations, you deserve it. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, my, my, for closing advertising, like where you go is 1026, 24. Like that's, that's, that's the section you, you're going to, you're going to go to. And there's, there's four trigger terms, right? There's, the amount of percentage of any down payment, the number of payments or period of repayment, the amount of any payment, and the amount of any finance charge. I mean, you look at an ad and you're like, okay, are, are one of these four on there? And the one that actually trips people up so often is the amount of percentage of any down payment. Do you know Do you know why that is, Ashton? Do you know why people, so many people get tripped up by that? I mean, I think everybody gets tripped up by math, but I feel like this is a riddle that I should know the answer to. So just tell me. Well, it's it's, it's a very interesting thing. It's, it's totally a legalese thing. So I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the, the, the element of it. But if you go into the commentary from the CFPB, it very specifically says, it says the dollar amount of a down payment or a statement of the down payment as a percentage of the price requires further information. By virtue of the definition of down payment in 1026.2, this triggering term is limited to credit sale transactions. So if the ad is for anything besides a credit sale transaction, then it's not a triggering term. Yeah, I think that that was a revelation you've given many of my banks, actually, that <laughs> rarely do you dig that far deep into it. And, and of course you have. Yeah, so that that's that's one of the cool things behind the the regulation is you gotta you gotta spend. Oh, I shouldn't say cool. That's one of the things you have to do with the regulations <laughs> is you gotta spend time in the commentary because if you don't, then you're gonna miss some of the the important elements such as that. I mean, you could go back to the definitions in section ten twenty six point two and and look at the definition of down payment and try to reach that conclusion, but that's a lot of tedious work that you'd have to do <laughs> when you can just chat in and have Dan tell you. Darn right. Chat in, <laughs> ask the attorneys at Compliance Alliance. Um, so there's there's actually a second one that, that I have a lot of fun with. And this one requires a little bit of interpretation, but it's in section 1030.8. So this is for regulation DD, which covers deposit accounts. Okay. So if you look in the commentary to section eight, we're in the commentary again, we're, we spend so much time in the commentary. Number number nine of the commentary discusses electronic advertising. It says, if an electronic advertisement, such as an advertisement appearing on an internet website, displays a triggering term, which for savings accounts or deposit accounts, that's annual percentage yield or APY, then the advertisement must clearly refer the consumer to the location where the additional required information begins. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that phrase, required information. So for deposit accounts, right, under Regulation DD, the trigger term is APY. We said that. Once you disclose the APY, then you're required to disclose the, the variable rates, the time the annual percentage yield is offered, minimum balance, minimum opening deposit, effects of fees, and, and so on. Like there's, there's a specific checklist of things you're required to disclose. What some people get tripped on, tripped up on is actually the disclosure of annual percentage yield, okay? 
So section C is the additional information that's required to disclose. That's the checklist that we talked about. Section B is the permissible rates. This falls before section C. Permissible rates is the one that requires you to actually use the phrase annual percentage yield. So the long story short of what I'm getting at is if your ad states APY, then you should conservatively put the phrase annual percentage yield in that ad. And it can't just be referenced one click away because this requirement falls before the additional information requirements. Now, this is just interpretive. This is just a CFPB according to, to Dan. Um, <laughs> but that that is the, the conservative interpretation of, of that regulation. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know what I would say my biggest hangups with the advertising things aren't necessarily like the letter of the law, but rather rather how we apply those in kind of new technology. So I think about like banks that have the the hover bubbles and they want to mm -hmm. stick disclosures in that and, and having to think about like, can you still access that on a mobile device and yeah. and everything else? That's been kind of my my struggle in the past year with advertising is is like I said, less less the strict reading and more how do we apply this to technology that wasn't thought of when that was written. Well, that, that's the fun part behind this, right? Because there's so much gray area. There's so much intent and letter of the law and, and elements like that. And we rely so heavily upon commentary, upon publications from, from the regulators, upon, upon so many outside sources to act as interpretations to these things. But at the end of the day, it's, it's interpretive, right? At the end of the day, there's, there's, there's going to be an argument and there's going to be wiggle room. And it's just a question of whether or not you want to be the, the first one in line or the, the last one in line in that <laughs> argument. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you and I have had some arguments where you're like, well, most conservatively, <laughs> here's the answer. <laughs> I don't agree with you. Well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that is, that is the unfortunate reality. I did a, I did a stint with, um, with a software development firm in Utah for one of my internships while I was in law school. And, and I had one of the attorneys there tell me that this, he's like, when it comes to contract law or when it comes to the law in general, you never want to be the first one in line. You always want to be the third or fourth or fifth. Let someone else litigate it. Let someone else raise the question. If you see someone else that's already gone through that process doing it, then generally you can, you can usually count on that or at least use that as a, as a good place to start. Not foolproof, but it's a, it's a good starting point. I feel like we have to go down one quick rabbit hole because at this point you've mentioned like 17 different states you've lived in, Dan. How, what's your count? <laughs> How many states have oh, you lived man. in? So let's see. I lived in Michigan, Colorado, Ohio, Colorado, Utah, Michigan, back to Colorado, Back to Michigan, Utah, Texas. I've lived all over the place, multiple times. <laughs> all over the place. I have had one official state of residency ever. Oh, that's that's fantastic. No, I do not have I, that. that, that I, I don't feel well traveled talking to you. <laughs> I, I have to admit though, like Texas has probably been one of my, my favorite places. Like it's a it's a great place to be. It gets a little warm during the summer. I could maybe do without the heat, but it's a it's a great state. I love that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, for our, for our audience listening in, that actually wraps up today's episode. We appreciate the fact that you tuned in and, and we look forward to the, to the new year with you. Uh, if you're interested in, in joining one of our podcast episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out. Ashton and I are, are always looking for people that are, are willing to join us for an episode and, and have something to say about the banking industry. For the rest of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And that's Banking Matters. <laughs>